Hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And it's the 18th of January, 2021. I'm putting the date in there specifically because I'm talking about some weather phenomenon which are due to hit, well, my part of the world, Nova Scotia, and have already hit uh, other parts of the world, uh, not least Spain in the last week, which has been experiencing some very unusual snowy conditions. Um, but meteorologists are telling us that we are about to be visited by the polar vortex. So what is the polar vortex? Now, I would like to say I am not a meteorologist. And even beyond that, I wouldn't say that meteorology is my strong suit when I do go to sea. Um, as those who sail with me will know, one of the basic tenets of meteorology that I like to point out to people um, is that when there are clouds about, something's happening. Um, this is the level of meteorology I've uh, come to know and, uh, and appreciate. Um, but maybe my knowledge does go a bit further than that, but I would be the first to say that I am in no way an expert. So the polar vortex, I did a little bit of research because it was something that I wasn't particularly aware of. It's definitely something which is trending. Um, it's something which has come into the vocabulary of everyday people and certainly everyday uh, weather reporters on the news stations a lot more in the last 10 years. The polar vortex, I think the first time that I ever heard of anybody talking about the polar vortex was in that film, The Day After Tomorrow. And when was that? That was like 2008 or something. Remember, like the whole world freezes and then they start having this very intense conversation about the fact that the polar vortex is going to come down. When it does indeed come down in the end, um, it like freezes people instantly. So uh, <laughs> it, is it that much that we need to be worried about it that badly? Well, not maybe as much as you might think. Certainly the polar vortex is something which is well understood in terms of where it is on the planet. We can imagine, of course, that the surface of the planet is um, moving from left to right when we look at a normal chart of the world. The surface of the planet is dragging along the atmosphere and then there's a lot of heating and cooling elements going on. We actually just discussed this quite recently in one of the uh, other podcasts were talking about the fact that uh, heat rises above the equator, it then cools and drops back down at about 30 degrees north, and there's a similar cell which is descending cold air at the uh, poles, um, and then that's pulling air in from around 60 degrees north. In between, there's another cell that helps to keep the kind of cogs of that system going, but there's these large effects uh, happening all of the time, but if we take for one second one of the details of that, which is the fact that the, the map is moving from left to right with the uh, atmosphere being dragged around with it, at the top of the world and at the bottom of the world, the air is just basically going round and round. Uh, this is the uh, Arctic and the Antarctic vortex. So what exactly is it? Well, it basically high wind speeds are found in the upper atmosphere. If you're going to go up between um, 10 and 50 kilometers up, that's 6 to 30 miles, you're going to find wind speeds which are over 200 miles an hour. That's not uncommon. At the top of the world and at the bottom of the world, those winds are just basically going round and round and round. And one of the descriptions I saw of this described it like a, um, a pizza being spun by an experienced chef. It's up in the air, it's turning, 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 and it's being kept going round and round uh, quite, uh, in, a, in quite a stable fashion uh, most of the time. When the polar vortex develops in the autumn, 
um, uh, it, it, it starts to rotate and it should have a nice stable pattern. If that pattern starts to get broken up, if it starts to trip over other weather systems, which are a little bit to the south of it, then it can start to split just as that um, pizza dough in the air might do. Um, it starts to get wobbly and then it starts to split. And when it starts to split, it's not rotating stably at the top of the world. And then it starts to come down and uh, when it's off balance, come down and affect areas which are to the north of North America, to the north of, uh, of Europe. And that's what we've seen happening in Spain. And that's what's going to come and um, swipe uh, Nova Scotia potentially in the next uh, in the next week. So when does it come south and when does it stay in position? What's controlling that? Basically, from what meteorologists seem to be saying is it's to do with the strength of the jet stream. If the jet stream is running fast and running hard and uh, stable, then the vortex is kept up at the North Pole. If the jet stream gets weaker, then the kind of boundary around the polar vortex is lost and then it starts to get out of balance. And this can particularly be caused when you get warm air coming in from Greenland and, uh, and in off the North Atlantic and that will then destabilize the vortex and get it out of balance. And when it's out of balance, it can split and then cells of it will come down into areas where we're not really expecting that kind of cold. So this last happened in the winter of 2014, 2015. Um, certainly here in North America, uh, for me in Nova Scotia, I can remember that year particularly as being very, very cold. It was one of the first ones that I was here in uh, Canada. And I was thinking, my God, this really is just the way they, they say it is. It is pretty, pretty darn serious. That year, I know in our driveway, uh, we had an issue where it was getting to a point we didn't have a snowblower. So we're just shoveling snow up onto the banks on either side. And it was getting to the point where the banks were eight feet high. Now, for people in many parts of the world, eight foot high snow is going to sound pretty, pretty serious. But I've got to say, if you watch the news coming out of Newfoundland most years, um, it's still a point of amazement for me that people are dealing and, and living with and working around the fact that their cars can get snowed in to the point where you can't find your car and you've got to use your bleeper to sort of locate it under the snow, then dig down and then decide, are you digging this thing out? Are you going to try and get it out to the weather? Uh, maybe the plow has kept the road clear or is it just in there until the snow melts? It can end up in a situation where snow is that deep that people are entering and exiting their houses through upper story windows or even through uh, roof access. Um, snow can be extraordinarily deep in this part of the world. But for Nova Scotia, eight foot was a kind of a big one. It's not been anything like that um, since. But this kind of snap can bring it in uh, very, very hard, very, very serious weather very quickly. So is this happening? Is it not going to happen? There's a lot of discussion from what I can see from a, a near lay point position online. The meteorologists are pointing out it's a very complex interaction between the jet stream, the polar vortex and everything else that's going on. And they can't for certain say whether it's going to happen or not. So we basically just got to kind of wait and see on the app that I use mostly, which is Windy. Uh, if you've not seen that before, it's a great app for your smartphone. I think they're also online, although I've never used it, but it's got a huge amount of information, temperature, snowfall, wave heights, lightning, um, radar, very easy to use format. And Windy is showing me that temperatures in Nova Scotia from Wednesday to Saturday will be about minus nine. Obviously, we've got wind chill on top of that. So 
I have become a great student of the polar vortex in the past couple of days because obviously we have the open 60 sitting out there and I'm very concerned that it doesn't get iced in. So um, I went and uh, uh, kind of had a bit of a check over everything today and we've got the engine up and running now and she's able to move no problem at all and get to where she might need to be. For me around here, basically it'd be a case of getting her into deeper water. The specific heat capacity of the water will stop it from uh, freezing up, particularly if there's a bit of movement in that as well. I have to say last year it never froze in uh, down here and I remember many, many days when it was minus 10. Uh, when you've got children and they're off out, uh, you start becoming a bit of an expert as a uh, <laughs> in a way that you never have been before, of like what temperature is out there, what's she wearing, has she got a, a gloves on, has she got a scarf on, has she got a hat on, um, and then when it does get back to zero, you're like, no, it's a warm day, don't worry, you don't need your gloves today. <laughs> so that's the reality of living in Nova Scotia. So I'm just going to be monitoring that for the next couple of days and seeing what's going on there. And if there's any concern, as she sits now, she sits in about 40 foot of water, which I'm extraordinarily lucky to have that just off the end of my dock here. That's what allows me to have the open 60 um, sitting right here. I can move her out just a little bit further, maybe another 500 meters away from the house. Then she'll be sitting in nearly 60 foot of water. So that may be the solution for me. Just take her a little bit further away from the edge of the uh, bay where she is. I don't want her to be, I don't think gripping her in the ice will be the problem. It's more when it starts to break up and then the ice of the bay is moving out past the boat and the boat is uh, tied still to its mooring. That's where the damage is going to be done. So uh, I'll be, be watching that. But um, for those who are uh, in a different situation elsewhere, just watch out. It could get extraordinarily cold uh, later part of this week. And uh, you want to make sure fuel tanks are full, that the fuel is in whatever that might be for your house. And there's warm jackets, coats, snow shovels in the truck and all that kind of stuff. Uh, if you live in those parts of the world, you, you know what to do. And for everybody else, um, <laughs> you can just relax. Don't worry, we've got this covered. It's Canada. Okay, so this uh, Monday session seems to be becoming a bit of a roundup from the world of sailing. So I've got my hastily scribbled notes here. Uh, it says Arctic Vortex. I can put a tick through that one. And then we've got three racing events. And I don't want to make this podcast all about racing because it's not the be all and end all of sailing. But we've got some pretty big events. They do relate to three racing events. So forgive me if racing is not particularly your thing. But um, you know, we I think we can all get a bit excited about the Vendée Globe. Like it's it's people on boats sailing around the planet. Like what's not to like about that? The story at the moment is, of course, that we are getting towards the end of this pretty thrilling uh, edition of the Vendée Globe. A number of the lead boats are all now into the North Atlantic. They've gone around Cape Horn. They've made their way successfully up along the edge of the St. Helena High, and they're now getting into the last sections of this race. And at the moment, the front of the race seems to be controlled by Charlie Dallin on Apivia and Louis Burton on Bureau Valet 2. So at the moment, they are in a pretty locked-in battle for the lead. They're both foiling boats, and they are both potentially online to be uh, at the front of this race as they go into Sardalon. As um, Jean Le Cam, uh, who's out there at the moment in uh, ninth position, pointed out, this race can go any which way. Uh, and you only really know what's happening when the boats turn the corner at La Corona on the, the northern corner of uh, Portugal and Spain there. Uh, Cap, uh, what's that? Cap Finisterre, that is there. Um, 
until they're on that final drag, we don't know what's going to happen. There's, there's a, a lot happening out there with the weather. There's a lot happening with these boats now having to push quite hard, despite the fact they've got damage, despite the fact they've already done a lot of sailing. Obviously, they've gone most of the way around the world. So it's all still to play for. And the big uh, event, the big uh, obstacle, which is still ahead of them, is the Canaries. They've got the Azores High, which is quite a stable uh, factor in all this. But then they've got the Canaries, and they've got that run into Saab Delon. One of the things when you're doing uh, solo or any kind of round-the-world racing is that you can pick from a, a large choice of headings in that you can you know head to 200 miles left of track or 300 miles right of track you can be anywhere but as you get into the final thousand miles of the race there's only one place you're going and it's not moving and you've got to take whatever decisions will get you to that place first whether that be upwind downwind through light breeze or whatever so Jean Le Cam's advice is, is absolutely correct, but we can tell that it's going to be uh, Dallin and Burton. And it's worth just putting a little spotlight on that for a second because they come from two very different backgrounds. Um, Dallin is racing on behalf of Apivia, and that is part of the Massif group. Now, Massif already have had their laurels for the Vendée Globe. Francois Gabar sailed around in 2012 2013 on their behalf and won. Um, he has an incredible group of people around him, Dallin. The guy, Francois Gabal, I just mentioned there, who himself was one of the students of Michel Desjoyeaux, otherwise known as the professor, himself a Vendée winner. Um, it's it's uh, Gabar's company, Mer Concept, who manages the project around Dallin. So we've got a big company with big budget, We've got an extremely experienced uh, person managing Dallin's team, and that extremely person, in the, uh, that extremely experienced person in the form of uh, Francois Gabar himself came down through the kind of royalty of um, of the ocean racing scene in France. The other thing with Dallin is that he came up through Mini and then up through Figaro and then into Imoca 60. Which, if you were going to kind of do a, a straight line from where you are to, I'm definitely going to be in the Vendée Globe, then you would take the kind of route that Dallin's taken. Um, the minis, just 6.5 meters, 21 foot long, very, very competitive, solo racing. Um, they're doing the Fastnet, they're doing Transatlantics, they're doing the Transjack Varb. They have a very competitive circuit, so it's really going to hone your skills. And then moving up to the Figaro, the Figaro has become the de facto method for people to develop their skills in single-handed and short-handed racing. It's built by Beneteau, 35 foot long. It's on its third evolution now, and this evolution has foils on it. It weighs only 2,900 kilos, which is what, like 7,000 pounds, something along those lines, and uh, has considerable performance potential. They are being used now in a very, very competitive fleet based primarily out of France, but the Figaro fleet is the group of sailors that we'd be expecting to move on up to Imoca 60s. Uh, the Imoca 60s certainly always have a kind of split personality. There's those who are hugely professional with massive budgets who have come up through this mini Figaro kind of heritage. And then there's a lot of Corinthians out there who are kind of coming in from other directions. And that's where Louis Burton has come into this. He did some stuff in about 2011 with a class 40 with his brother Nelson. Um, they then got themselves a far Imoca 60, um, but they had some technical issues with it when they were in the Transjack Varb. 
They were doing okay, then they fell back to 11th. Um, but then he seems to have fallen in uh, quite nicely. He's got great skills, so why not with uh, Bruno Peroles, who's the president and the founder of the French office supply giant, uh, Bureau Valet. And they hit on a very wise, I think, tactic, and they bought um, Bank Populaire 10 even before it crossed the finish line of the Vendée four years ago. So they hit the ground running with a boat they knew was strong, could do the job, was fast, and they've just been working at that. But their, their um, budget is a lot less than um, Apivia. Apivia have got their latest generation um, uh, Verdier uh, design. This is a super light foiling boat. It's custom made, it's brand new. And they have spent you know a couple of years now optimizing that and making it as fast as they possibly can. Meanwhile, down in, uh, I think they're in Lorient, um, Louis Burton, they have been kind of picking which races they could be in because their budget's a lot smaller. They can't be blowing things up left, right, and center. And they have had a lot more kind of um, church mouse type uh, entry to this. Although, of course, nobody's really a church mouse when you've got boats that are worth millions and millions of dollars. But I think what comes out of this is the fact that with two completely different backgrounds, with two completely different tactics, They've stepped onto the water here and have been having this battle royale for um, thousands and thousands of miles already. So we shall see what happens as we get a little bit closer to the uh, corner there at La Corona and see what happens. But for now, the rest of the fleet is quite a way behind them. Uh, everybody up to ninth is kind of like in one pack. And then we've got people obviously a lot further back down. Uh, some of them only just gone around Cape Horn. So a real spread across the fleet at the moment. Uh, I, for one, have been playing the Vendée Globe uh, race, which has been quite good fun. That came to a conclusion for me in the last uh, 12 hours when I finally went over the finish line in my third race around the world, but this one done from the armchair. Uh, this uh, time I came in 24,000th and 46th. So <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be getting much for that. But there was quite a lot of people in the race. That's my go-to uh, excuse in any of this stuff. So I wasn't 24,046th out of 24,050. So that's that's okay. But um, I did it in, what, 71 days, 4 hours, and 27 minutes. So <laughs> it's probably the fastest I'll ever do it, isn't it? Let's be honest. So the people that uh, actually won that uh, race uh well congratulations to them uh, there's obviously twenty four thousand and forty five of them ahead of me so they must have been concentrating a bit more than i did it was fun though to be involved and if you haven't seen that it's that virtual regatta app it's just on the phone you are tracking around the world using actual gribs that are happening on the surface of the ocean at that moment so it is an opportunity to uh, brush up your skills and that could be whether you're a racer or a cruiser because um, at the end of the day taking some time to learn more about meteorology and not just be uh, thinking, well, there's clouds around, something might be going on, as I do. Um, it, it's definitely a good thing. So there's not many times you can practice that. There happens to be a game that covers this. I say, <laughs> let's support them. So uh, Vendee Globe for me, uh, crashing success. Uh, I think the guys are out in the water, probably a lot harder time of it, but we're watching them as they come in. And they could be in within the next 10 days, depending on weather, the fastest guys, those at the front, Burton and Dallin, could be in within 10 days, and then we'll be watching the rest. And of course, we've got our little flag flying high for Pip Hare. She's had a bit of a difficulties in the last 
couple of days and she herself has actually said that she's messed up her navigation and kind of gone the wrong way she seems to be back on track now um, having been in that situation it happens you know you're tired and to be absolutely honest you can end up putting a lot more study and a lot more effort and a lot more time into other areas of the boat and then suddenly one decision we're going to go over here doesn't work out and it has a crippling effect on your race but um it doesn't matter she's out there of course proving to all of us that we can make it happen if we want to she'd already got a pretty decent sailing background behind her but she hadn't done it in the way that uh we've been saying you should do supposedly through minis and figaros she made it happen she'd been writing for yachting world for a good while i've seen her writing all across the different uh, points of journalism and um she turned that enthusiasm for sailing into a Vendee campaign. Like there's, there's no flies on her. So definitely be watching as she climbs up the Atlantic and see if she can uh, improve her position somewhat. Go Pep, I hope she can. What else has been happening? Well, the America's Cup. The America's Cup, it's almost a dirty word, isn't it? Like, is anybody actually watching that? There, there must be, or I think there must be, because there seems to be millions and millions of dollars around it. But having had a bit of a brush with the America's Cup, 12 years ago where I was on the absolute tiny periphery of what was going on with the Chinese uh, team. Um, I, even then, uh, I think we were all wondering who was watching it. But there is no denying, of course, that it does show us where the absolute bleeding edge of technology is for sailing and whether we like or don't like what's going on there and whether we'll be cruising around in boats that fly above the surface of the ocean in uh, 20 years' time. I don't know, but it does show us what's possible. And um, it's of great interest to me. I, I was doing a lot of uh, personal research and personal work in the early 2000s on hydrofoils and uh, working to make a uh, hydrofoil contour, which could work in a supercavitating and a subcavitating format. Um, to now see these problems cracked and boats on the water which are using foils in a highly efficient way to, to push beyond performance boundaries, which I can remember in 2000, 2001, that the idea of breaking 50 knots was uh, out of the ballpark. And now, of course, it happens relatively regularly with uh, foiling craft, uh, more kind of like specific vessels that are meant for uh, speed records. But the big triumvirans, you know, they're getting into some pretty crazy averages. We'll be talking about that in a second when we touch on the Jules Verne trophy, which is going on right now. But big triumvirans pushing up into the high 40s, 100-foot triumvirans flying a meter above the water, pushing it over 45 knots is not that uncommon now. So we live, as I always say, in an age of miracles. And the America's Cup is a, is a miracle of technology in all sorts of ways. Obviously, they're pushing the edge to what can happen with carbon fiber. They're pushing the edges of what can happen with sail design and, of course, foils. So the issue they got into yesterday was that the boat, uh, American Magic Patriot, uh, left the water and uh, and came crashing down, went onto her side, uh, took on a lot of water and was pretty much a wash. Luckily, all of the crew were able to get clear uh, at, during the incident and just after the incident. They took their knives and cut their way out from where they were in the cockpit uh, or the little kind of nacelles which were on the sides of the boat and uh, got themselves clear from under the mainsail, which was excellent. The response from the race organizers and the safety boats was fantastic. Uh, they are left now in the situation where they've got a heavily damaged boat, uh, but it's thought that they probably can get it back together in time. They've got about 10 days until the next race. So it seems that a lot of the teams are pulling hard, the sponsors are pulling hard, 
they want to see the boat back on the water. There is another boat in their campaign. There's Defiance, but it's been um, cannibalized so much to get Patriot on the water uh, that it's not a case that they can swap gear onto that and go sailing in that. So whether they'll be able to get Patriot back together again, I couldn't see from the footage that I saw exactly how the damage occurred, but I'm guessing that if you fly into the air <laughs> at nearly 40 knots and come crashing down on the ground, or rather crashing down on the water, um, something got to give. Uh, I believe there was a hole punched in the side of the boat and that started let in water. And um, yeah, the... Question marks over the safety of the boats. I don't think this is the most serious crash that I've seen. There have been similar kinds of instances in training. The issue seemed to be that it was going to be a very hard bear away, and uh, it just it didn't happen in the way that they're expecting. As you can hear the commentary on board the boats, a couple of voices saying this is going to be very difficult. They go into it. Dean Barker, the helmsman, takes them down into the bear away. I didn't see much ease of the main sheet, but I have no idea what the variables are on this. Their easing on the main sheet could be 20 centimeters down the Traveller, for all I know. Um, it, it obviously is running in completely different configurations than anything I'm used to. The, the apparent wind is just through the roof. So, uh, well, forces just seem to act against each other and, and propel the boat upwards rather than forwards. And uh, she came down pretty hard on her side. So a developing story there, and we'll just have to see how that comes about in the next couple of days. There was another boat, of course, that had uh, this issue, this kind of big structural issue, which was Young America in 1999. If you remember that, basically the back of the boat broke and it just kind of sank there on the spot. Um, there was also the Aussie boat that sunk in 1995. Boats in this arena are at the very edge of what's possible. We have seen now we've got to the point where we're not quite sure if they're aircraft or if they're boats, but... Uh, it's to be expected this kind of thing happens. We do see now that all the sailors are wearing uh, helmets and everything that they do. Safety is at the very fore of it. So we shall see if they're able to get it back together again. I hope that they can. They were actually on for a point, which was uh, looking good. They've had a bit of a slow regatta so far with Prada out in front on pretty much everything. It did look like they were actually going to get some points this time. It was snatched from them by this situation. But uh, yeah, pretty, pretty incredible. Here we are in 2021. We're definitely in the future when the issue that we've got in a sailing race is that the boat plummeted out of the sky and hold itself. So <laughs> who knows? Who knows? Well, the last thing in the in the racing category here, not that we have any other categories that we're going to be going to afterwards, is the Jules Verne trophy. So if you haven't heard of this, obviously Jules Verne, French uh, author uh, and the man who wrote to 20,000 leagues um, around the world in 80 days, this event started in 1993 and the rules are very very simple you've got to sail around the world in any way you can as long as it's a sailboat uh, as fast as possible it's, it's nice and simple the minimum route as with any uh, circumnavigation is 21,800 miles you've got to cross your outbound track there is a start line and interestingly for me it's the same start line that i'm going to for my west around the world record and that's between the lighthouse on the isle of ushant and lizard point sticking out of england so basically that top northern part of france that's just below uh, the bottom of the uk there's a line going across the channel there you have to cross that and then sail 21,800 miles as a minimum around the world you've got to cross uh, all lines of longitude and you have to cross your outbound track. Then after that, the rules are very easy. Just get it done as fast as you possibly can. So the boat which is out there at the moment is called Edmund de Rothschild, and we've seen them uh, also in the Vendée Globe. Uh, the boat is like over 100 foot long, uh, 
foiling trimaran. So <laughs> it's about as similar to everyday boats as a spaceship is to a Honda. The issue here with them is that they did have a little bit of a slowdown uh, earlier on in the doldrums. They had almost uh, a day when they couldn't move. <laughs> but then get this. So far on their route, their average speed is 28 knots. <laughs> so even though they stopped for a day, they are still doing uh, an average 28 knots. Now at the moment they are eight days out from that start line and they are just off the coast of South America. So uh, the bulge where Cabo Frio is and Rio de Janeiro, they're just around there. And what they're trying to do at the moment is they are, obviously the meteorology for this kind of thing is just out of this world. They can receive meteorological input from off the boat for routing. Uh, it's not like a race. They can get things which are, you know, not just on the boat, they can get other information piped in. They also set off, though, at a, in a very particular moment when the meteorologists were looking at the timing of weather systems coming off the uh, eastern coast of South America. As we've talked about before, these big weather systems, they're created on the east coast of South America. They then move across the vast open tracks at the bottom of the world, the Southern Ocean, and they are completely unimpeded on their way. So what uh, the crew, what um, uh, Camas and Cordelier are looking for and their team of meteorologists is they're looking for a new system being developed just down near kind of Uruguay and then that system is going to set off uh, across the South Atlantic and across the uh, Southern Indian Ocean and they want to be on that when it goes. So they're trying to transition at the moment from the southeasterly trade remember below the equator the trade winds run from the southeast to the northwest and above the equator they run from the northeast to the southwest so they're now below the equator they're in the trade winds that are coming up from the southeast and they need to transit into a developing system which is going to allow them to come down come south and with speed go around the bottom of cape of good hope the issue down in that part of the Southern Atlantic, if you're not able to get onto a new system, is that you have the St. Helena High. Now that has no wind in the center of it at all. It's sitting in the southern part of the Atlantic. It's rotating anti-clockwise because it's a high, but it's going around the opposite direction you might be used to because it's down in the Southern Hemisphere. And it's acting like a big roundabout. And if you're doing a race there in that part of the world, Normally you're looking to come down the coast of uh, eastern South America and then get onto the lower section of that rotating weather system and then pop out at uh, Cape Town. A more performance-based way of doing that is to look for a developing system which is going to cross the southern Atlantic and then hook into that. And that will allow you to transit from the uh, latitude of Rio and get down into the Southern Ocean. We've talked before about the fact that the average wind speed at 40 south is 40 knots and then 50 south is 50 knots. So if you want to transit from the trades to those big Southern Ocean breezes, which are going to really power a vessel like this along at its maximum speeds, you need something to allow you to transit through. And that's what this developing system's for. So at the moment, it's looking like they're going to do it. And if they do do that, we could be on for a very quick run around the world by these guys. The the race, uh, not race, sorry, the record has been getting quicker and quicker. I just said that I was able to finish the Vendee Globe there in 70 odd days or whatever it was. In 1993, when Bruno Perron um, in Commodore Explorer won the Jules Verne Trophy, he did it in 79 days. And this kind of starts to give you an idea of how the edges of sailing have been changing in the last 30 years. 1993, uh, it's 79 days. 
1994, Peter Blake and Sir Robin Knox Johnston in Enza do it in 74 days. Then uh, Olivier de Curaçao in um, Sportalec in 1997, that was 71 days. Then Bruno Perron comes back and they had the race, which was the big around the world race um, in uh, 2000, which got these big multi-holes powered up. He takes um, Orange out in 2002 and does a 64-day lap. And then the times start to kind of go into a free fall. In 2004, we've got 63 days. In 2005, it drops to 50 days. In 2010, it's at 48 days. And that's actually uh, Frank Camas, who's out there now. And then we start to slide down into 2012, 45 days. And in 2017, 40 days. So 1993, you know, it's like 18 hours off being 80 days around the world. And in 2017, what's that like? Uh, 7, 17, oh, 25 years later, we're at 40 days. Like, <laughs> that's trucking. So if um, the Edmund de Rothschild's boat is able to come back with a record, we are going to be looking at a boat which is going around the world in and around 40 days. I think 40 days at the moment is a, is a record. I'm sure they're very keen to break. Now, they did have that period where they had to slow right down, although I'm told it was part of their tactic. They just had to be in that position to catch up with the next system in the way that they wanted to. At the moment, though, they're looking at speeds. It's, it's quite unbelievable when you get into what sort of speed they're doing. At the moment, they've got about um, 12 knots of breeze. And in 12 knots of breeze, they can do an average speed around 20 knots. Now, obviously, that's probably broad reaching or, or a similar kind of angle. But um, isn't that incredible to have a boat that can do that? So I'll be continuing to watch that with some uh, interest. I've got to say, I don't spend like huge amounts of my day looking at what's going on in the world of uh, yacht racing because it tends to be the same personalities with the same backers doing the same things. But I can always get behind and understand uh, individual or team pursuit of just trying to drive a machine as hard as you can. And there's no race course, of course, better than racing around the planet. So we should be keeping an eye on that one. Right, well, that's the world of, uh, of sailing. Oh, the other thing I should mention also is that the first boat has come in on the transatlantic race, the Rourke transatlantic race. That's pretty uh, awesome. I saw that this morning. The boat was uh, Rayon Ver. It's a uh, multi-50 trimaran. And of course, in this kind of race, reaching all the way across the Atlantic, we can always expect that the multi-hulls are going to be in first. It's just perfect conditions for them. So that was uh, Oren Nataf and, uh, and Alex Pella. They came in in, what's this, nine days, three hours and 33 minutes. So I've done that race quite a few times. Never that fast. <laughs> so uh, good for them. And I, actually, I was enjoying just looking at the pictures. So I've done that race a number of times. And uh, I could just see the corner there of Grenada in the background. Many happy memories of coming in on that event. It really is a, a cracker. I've got to say, I've done the ARC. I've done the, um, the Rourke Transatlantic race. And starting off from Lanzarote for the Rourke Transatlantic race, uh, I've got to say, I prefer it. The issue with Grand uh, Canaria is that it's just so many people there for the ARC. Although ARC themselves, the... Um, they do a fantastic job of putting on all these workshops and putting all these events just where it happens. And it just doesn't kind of compare to the, uh, the, the, the setup for the Rourke Transatlantic race. And then when you get out on the water, it's just exactly the same race. Where are you then going to is your next question. Um, and for me personally, having been to St. Lucia and Grenada, I prefer Grenada. Like the people down there are super happy. So 
Um, if you're going to cross the Atlantic, give both a look. Um, the Ark is very, very popular, but the Rourke Transatlantic race, you can, I mean, it's a race, but you don't really have to like, you know, put 100% in if you just want to cruise across. Don't worry about it too much. They're not going to like beat the soles of your feet if you come in slowly. But if you're interested in the place that you set off from and come in to, uh, I've got to say, <laughs> I do like the Rourke Transat a little bit more. But anyway, I shouldn't say anymore, so it won't let me in the Ark again. So what else is going on? The other thing which we're getting worked out at the moment is what's going to be happening with this loop back across the Atlantic with Spartan. Um, still yet to kind of work out the exact dates on that, but the website is being overhauled in the next week and then it will all be up on there. But basically we'll be leaving uh, the south of the UK cows around the middle of August and making our way up to Norway on a two-week voyage up through the, the North Sea and Scotland and uh, exploring anywhere basically that we want to go on the way up through there. Um, we will of course be doing all this COVID aware so people will be asked for a negative COVID result um, before they're able to join the boat and uh, we'll all be then looking to limit as much contact as we can with the place that we go to and we'll be only traveling in accordance with the rules of those countries that we're going to but once we're in Norway that'll be then the beginning of September and we'll be departing pretty rapidly from Norway with a new group of people that will be crossing over to the Faroe Islands. That'll take about a week. We'll spend a couple of days there and then we'll be voyaging on off to uh, Iceland and Iceland will be where the people on that voyage, about another two week voyage, go and have a look at that. Uh, and we'll take a new crew on board and that crew will come with us then over to Greenland and then down to Newfoundland. So uh, two fantastic destinations uh, on that voyage, uh, a little bit more mileage to do, still a two weeker, but maybe focusing on the sailing a little bit more and coming down into Newfoundland, which if you haven't been there is uh, quite an incredible place to hang out. Um, and then I'll be bringing the boat down on the normal run from St. John's back to uh, Lunenburg, which we call the Newfoundland Screech. That's a much shorter run, but for those who are just stepping off into the world of offshore sailing, uh, potentially a good one there. So we'll be doing this with, let's say, whichever boats we've got. So at the moment, we have the Open 60. That'll be going across the Atlantic uh, in uh, early August. And then we'll be picking up a Challenger as well this year, getting her back onto the water. Uh, she's had a, a, a basically a year since she last worked because, of course, COVID, she'll be on the water and doing the east coast of the US and then crossing the Atlantic with Falcon uh, at the beginning of August and then doing this run up and around and uh, across the north of the Atlantic, which I'm pretty excited about. I've got to say, we've got a lot of people interested. We're starting a book already for those who have just made contact through the podcast. The website will go live in the next two weeks with a new look, which I'm looking forward to for 2021. And uh, yeah, the opportunity to get on the water on these boats, um, we've got Whitbread 60s, Open 60s, and if my madcap uh, plan for 2021 comes together, then we're gonna have a Whitbread Maxi as well. So uh, if you haven't been to the website before, it's www.spartanoceanracing.com, and uh, have, a, have a dig around there as it is now. I say it's gonna get a little bit better, and we're gonna make it more a destination where there's lots of different things to do with sailing on there. Um, so you can use it as a bit of a resource at the moment, unless you're going to be like coming and joining us for one of the trips. It's a bit of a quick read, but hopefully we can start to fill that out with a few more things as we go further along. Okay, well, a couple of emails here as well. Thanks very much to Bruce Williams, who got in touch. Hey, Bruce, he's uh, been a regular 
contributor through these uh, podcasts and I think some of the YouTube videos as well. Hey, Bruce. Um, he pointed out to me that the podcast I did the other day about batteries, I opened this email with like trepidation, like had I completely and utterly messed something up. But no, he was saying that there's a, a great YouTube resource you can go to. So I'll just pass that to you. It's called DIY Solar Power with Will Prouse. Uh, that's P-R-O-W-S-E. DIY Solar Power with Will Prouse. 400,000 subscribers. Not that I'm jealous, it's okay. Um, but uh, he actually tears these batteries apart and really checks them out and sees what's going on inside them. So lots of good information there if you are thinking of taking that, uh, that choice uh, through to um, lithium iron phosphate batteries. I've got to say, I'm pretty excited about it. I was just talking to the, um, the agent this morning about it and uh, starting to get a feeling for when they're going to be here. Um, at the moment, the boat has been sitting there with like two old kind of knackered deep cycle lead acid batteries on board and it's got this solar cell pumping um, electricity into them very usefully in a very uh, comprehensive way. But um, yeah, as soon as I've been in the boat for like, I don't know, like an hour, already I can see things like, hang on, this is the voltage is already starting to drop on these batteries. Um, to have a revelation of there being solid power that really can give everything that's written on the side of the battery, I'm getting pretty excited about that. And I'm getting excited to um, then transfer this learning back to Challenger, which if anybody sailed on Challenger with me, charging on that boat, oh my God. She's got uh, one of those dripless seals. Those, uh, is it PSS? The people, God knows what the acronym of PSS stands for. I've got a lot of things flipping through my head that do not involve the word dripless. Every single one of those I've had leaks like there's no tomorrow, um, forever having to deal with uh, issues on them. And, uh, and then, of course, when they do leak, because there's a rotational force on that seal, it just sprays water all over the back of the engine. And poor old Challenger, Bless her cotton socks. For all the miles she's done with me, she forever has a very wet engine bay. Um, I would very, very quickly change to a, uh, a, 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 what's it called, sail drive if I possibly had the uh, chance. I'd never have any water in boats when I have sail drives. But anyway, yes, so charging on that boat, if it's not the flipping alternator belts um, slipping, it's the... Um, it's the back of the alternator getting wet with moisture from this PSS seal that's leaking. It's, it's just like a... <laughs> it's just like a comedy of errors. Uh, and anybody that has a boat knows this is how it actually goes. It's not like all those um, all those pros that we saw on the uh, <laughs> Jules Verne and the Vendée and the America's Cup. Here we are, back of the queue with our duct tape and our um, try and tie it up, see if that works type attitude. Um, so yeah, I'm hoping that one of the big changes on that boat for 2021 will be probably a sail drive if we can do that. But if not, um, just somehow seal away that seal so if not leaking into the rest of the boat that'd be great I just put a box around it and put its own bilge pump on it and then get into the engine have a nice professional charging solution that um, can drive into these lithium uh, iron phosphate batteries and then have all the power in the world we charge on that boat we had got into a habit of charging for yeah as people went down to wake up the next watch every three hours as people went down to wake up the next watch, we turn on the engine. So the last 15 minutes of your sleep cycle, you, the engine was on. So people woke up to the engine and then it would be on for half an hour while people going to sleep. And that sounds like that might be my, some kind of cruel, unusual torture to have the engine on, on a race boat right next to your bunk as you're going to sleep. But um, now, Christina, what do you call that engine? Is it Graham? Christina Cunningham that comes on the, the boat quite regularly. She's got a name for that engine. I forget what it is now, but um, 
at the beginning she was like i'm not gonna be able to sleep with that engine it's like a hundred is it no 75 horsepower yamaha and there's like a, a sheet of kevlar between <laughs> between the sleeper's head and the engine and everyone says i can't sleep with that but you know what by the end of the trip everybody says if you could put the engine on i need to go to sleep they like use it as like some kind of weird white noise background thing that sends them to sleep so when graham or whatever the engine's called uh, comes on um it will it comes on for half an hour as people are going to sleep so every three hours we do three quarters of an hour of charging um, i wonder how that will be cut into uh, with lithium phosphate batteries on the boat and if i'm just going to have to run the engine with no load on it um, just so that christina can go to sleep i don't know these are the things that uh, that have me worrying every night um, so thanks very much for that, Bruce. Uh, uh, he also sent me another email, which is kind of interesting. I've got to do a little bit of research. Um, it's about, am I going to be using Starlink on the boat? Um, Starlink, of course, is um, Elon Musk's new satellite communication system. Now, if you haven't heard about this, uh, <laughs> it's, it's almost beyond believing when you, when you find out the details of what they're going to be doing. So they are putting literally thousands of satellites uh, up into the <laughs> up into the sky on our behalf or so we're told so the basic gig is gonna be this there's gonna be this massive constellation i've heard anything between four and a half thousand and twelve and a half thousand satellites which that just kind of beggars belief a little bit obviously yes i could ask google but this is bloke down the pub type per conversation so the actual number of satellites could range anywhere between four and a half thousand and a million so in between there somewhere is what's going to happen but if you haven't done this yet just go and lie out on the grass somewhere or the deck of the boat whatever you've got available even if you're in a snow jacket doesn't matter and just look at the sky for a while i did this about three months ago with a friend we were just lying on the dock looking at the sky and realized man there's a lot of stuff moving around <laughs> up there it's the weirdest thing obviously we have all looked at the sky many many times like this shouldn't be new we're sailors we're interested in the sky great uh, just spend a little bit of time alcohol could be involved just lie back and just look carefully and we found a little place that's kind of above nova scotia <laughs> it's obviously where some of these satellites cross in their orbit because there was one going like north to south okay and see that guy cool and then 20 seconds later another guy going north to south little white light very imperceptible almost but like satellites look like that little pinprick of light and like okay oh another 20 seconds later there's another one and then one comes from the uh west yeah west east okay and one go past that way then another one went north south and lying there for half an hour it's like 17 satellites went past or something it was the most unbelievable thing i do remember the first time i saw some of the starlink uh satellites i was out uh in where was it i was in challenger and we were between bermuda and nova scotia and there was a couple on board. What were they called? Chris and Tess. That was it. Chris and Tess. And Tess, if I remember correctly, worked for someone like Raytheon. So we all kind of, when this thing happened, we all looked at her and went, do you know anything about this? She's like, no, no, no. Because what happened was we're looking up at the sky and like uh, the Hogwarts Express went past in the sky. It was the weirdest thing. There was this string of lights, about 12 or yeah, 11 or 12 of them all in a line, all equally bright, all moving at like satellite speed. And I think everyone, as I say, we all looked at Tess because she worked for Atheon, like, do you know anything about this? Uh, no, of course, what it was, was the first of the Starlink um, satellites going up. And when they're first released from the 
uh, from the cargo uh, area, they are all very, very close together, and then they slowly maneuver into their actual orbits over time. But that first thing, I didn't know anything about Starlink. I didn't know what they were doing. I didn't know the cells had been released. So a great opportunity as the captain to just, uh, you know, keep the steely gaze, keep the chiseled jaw. People looking at you going like, is it the end of the world? You're like, no, but uh, maybe we should get a cup of tea on and have a, have a think about what we've seen. You know, just something, just try and channel your, your inner Clint Eastwood or your, your inner Steve uh, McQueen um, as opposed to Steve Martin, which it normally is for me. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it was quite, uh, quite shocking. So um, they're up there now and they're going up there very, very rapidly. And the idea with Starlink is that there's going to be cheap global communications for like anybody on the, on the planet, give or take like some very tight polar regions. The, it would be possible for people anywhere to buy a receiver. It's about, I'm told it's about the size of a pizza box and it's going to cost about 200 US dollars and it will give you decent usable internet everywhere. And I thought when I first heard this, my God, like that is so altruistic. I put my hand on my heart, you know, like Elon Musk, God, he's saving us all from ourselves again. Thank God for him. And then I found out that what's actually going on is that um, if you fire a laser through a vacuum, i.e. space, um, it moves really, really fast. It moves faster, in fact, than uh, fiber optic cables running across the bottom of the Atlantic. And so the financial markets are very interested about the fact that they'll be able to transmit data backs and forwards for buying and selling of stocks and shares and hedge thingies that I know nothing about. And uh, they'll be able to fire information backs and forwards via laser through this constellation of satellites in a vacuum, and it will arrive at its destination quicker than any fiber optic cable. And that is how they will make their billions out of this system. That is the money that is able to put these things up in space. But it has this other usage, which is, uh, I think it's like secondary usage, um, is that uh, anybody everywhere will have a connection to the internet, which is going to be a revolution. But obviously onboard boat, um, this could be very interesting. Suddenly we're not going to be going through Glosnas or through the Inmarsat system or any of those other units that we've got used to now with their, you know, costs are going down. That's a whole podcast in itself, isn't it? Talking about communications at sea, but um, costs are rapidly dropping on that stuff. I can remember fielding a 10,000 US dollar bill. Oh my God, for satellite communications when I did the Clipper race. Um, if you're phoning uh, privately, you, Clipper are not going to cover you for that. Of course, you get billed whatever it is that the satellite ch company charges. And I got a 10,000 US dollar bill. Oh my God, I just, I just got the cold sweats just thinking about it now. But um, because I had been, uh, well, making a lot of phone calls. Um, it's getting better. And now, of course, we've got the Iridium Go, which is, uh, I use that all the time. It's um, a, a bit bigger than a packet of cigarettes. As you can tell, most of the things that I, uh, I don't actually smoke anymore, but um, uh, <laughs> kind of vary things by how they relate to the size of a packet of cigarettes. So it's a bit bigger than a packet of cigarettes. And um, you just have a little antenna on the side. You can connect with it wirelessly, and then you have internet at sea. You can send pictures. You can send um, voice, uh, you know, in term voice recordings, which I do for blogs. Um, you can send and receive uh, emails and uh, and text messages, and you can do voice calls through it. And it's very, very reasonable. The prices. So all of that is dropping. But suddenly, yeah, this new uh, constellation of satellites up there, a whole new communication. Uh, option that is going to be pretty wild. I've been really enjoying watching the Vendée and uh, realizing that you know we can see more and more of what's going on with these sailors now and get a, a better feeling for their personality and the everyday stuff. Um, it's a little bit like the Truman Show when they can actually move the cameras from the um, 
from the center in France uh, <laughs> and the, the, the sailors are kind of being tracked around by cameras which are being covered by people remotely. I, I'm not sure how I deal with that, but the, uh, the possibility to suddenly get on the inside of offshore racing and see what it's all about and to, to sample uh, this, this incredible uh, developmental story that sailors go through as they as they battle, you know, even if it's across an ocean or, or a big race, like the Middle Sea race or the Rock Transat or something like that, or indeed all the way around the world, it might be the thing that saves offshore racing when suddenly we can see what's going on. And I guess that would dovetail us into the 2024 Olympics and the fact that we're going to have an offshore sailing event for the first time in the Olympics and that already the organizers are saying that it's going to be you know lots of cameras heavily um, uh, uh, posted towards being a media event um, and I guess that's the only way of doing it otherwise what do you do with uh, offshore yacht racing like you do the start then they all disappear and then three days later they turn back up again like that's pretty crap uh, sport um, it's great when you're involved in it but from a spectator point sailing is already impossible for uh, uh, an audience to understand as uh, one person said to me the only people who are qualified to understand what's going on in the start line of a yacht race are the people that are in the start line of that yacht race so um, anything that can happen with communications at sea uh, I think is going to be great in terms of safety it's going to be great in terms of keeping people connected to each other um, and and opening up offshore yacht racing and it does also just I just think about the fact you know you could do business from a boat you could actually keep pursuing your your um, your work now obviously since COVID we're all doing everything from home we're doing everything on Zoom we've all uh, my own business taking advantage of remote uh, servers and uh, an API interconnectivity between websites so I can do a lot of things autonomously um, I can also hire people online and get all sorts of work done so could you do that from on board a boat hmm yeah you probably could actually i'm thinking of that right now like i wouldn't need that much bandwidth to get by with most of the things that i do um yeah so interesting time so bruce i will uh, go and have a look at that and see what uh options they've got for the marine industry and whether it's going to happen and uh, and thanks for the nudge there as we've just had a quick uh, sail through um offshore comms there maybe that's something to go into in a little bit more depth in another one of these um i hope you like the increased amount of uh, work that's going on here uh, i haven't quite got it all stitched together because anybody that was actually taking notes a few of them wrote to me with big smiley faces yes i did put out four last week when i said there was going to be five so uh yeah my bad i'm working on it all right it's uh, it's it's quite a lot of stuff and it's uh, it's kind of interesting to try and push it in this way but um, it, it, there are actually already increased numbers for people viewing the podcast, so uh, or rather listening to the podcast. So if you are in a position where you can uh, share with other people that you listen to this, um, then please do that. Uh, the idea is to get as many people on board as possible and, uh, and to make this um, whatever it is that you want it to be. Write to me with your uh, options. But it seems to be a good mix of like seamanship things and learning about particular subjects, a couple of interviews, some news and updates, people sending me questions, and then we've got the book readings and things. And uh, I've got a new series, which I'm probably going to add in in the next couple of weeks, which is going to be um, the uh, uh, Seamanship's uh, Alphabet. I haven't got a proper title for it yet, but it's going to be, I remember writing a, a training manual about, oh, I don't know, 15 years ago when I worked for Outward Bound, and uh, it was called A is for Anchoring. And uh, A was for anchoring, and then B was for something else, and C was for something else. And we just went through the alphabet that way. Because otherwise, how do you 
decide which you know part of the boat you're going to look at uh, next it's uh, do we do all systems do we do all sales well we pre-sailed out by the end of that won't we or maybe we're going to start with composite repair so it's going to be a long time till you get to the thing that you're interested in which is actually tying knots so just going through it based on the letter of the alphabet seems good enough to me and we can we'll go through the alphabet a few times so a is for anchoring. That's going to be the first in that series. Uh, probably, I think this week, maybe next week. Um, I'm taking suggestions for B, C, D, E, and all the rest of the alphabet. So um, that'll be coming your way soon, and we'll concentrate on a particular area of seamanship, and then I can, um, well, try and give you as much uh, insight as I can. Anchoring is something which I'm very hot on, uh, very interested in. Um, that's the difference between uh, losing the boat <laughs> and having a good night's sleep. So it's kind of one of those basics you need to find your way through. I did get a couple people asking me for some input on anchoring. So that'd be a perfect forum for that. So yeah, um, I will get on it. I will do better. I'm sorry. I will make more effort to do this and stop doing them, stop recording them late at night, which seems to have become a thing now and get back to doing them in the daylight. But then like sailing, I'm a, a constant student. Uh, and this is the thing that I'm learning at the moment. So bear with me as I get my uh, get myself worked out here. But um, wherever you are listening to this, whichever corner of the planet you find yourself in, I do get the figures and the numbers and the demographics back from this. And there are some people in some pretty wacky places listening to this from New Zealand to islands of the Caribbean. We could kind of expect those two. And then somebody in Mongolia, whoever you are, hello, people in Iceland, people in Finland and, uh, and Germany, Australia, uh, where else? Um, South America, Belize, uh, Mexico, Canada. It's like, it's all over the place. It's all over the place. So wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound. Um, keep those around you happy, keep them safe. And we shall meet back here tomorrow if I can get myself together properly and um, and we'll get on with another episode of the Mariner until then cheers